Daniel, thank you for your uh, leadership in prayer this morning. Appreciate that very much. Turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be finishing the 10th chapter of Mark this morning. So we are continuing to plod on in this gospel. In the fall, I made a joke, several jokes actually, about the Dallas Cowboys and their inability to make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, A good number of you lost your sense of humor that morning. I don't know if you remember. And it still doesn't change the fact that our high school seniors have never seen Dallas play in a Super Bowl. Uh, You realize that? And they won't this year either because of some dubious officiating last week. They won't see that happen this year. And I'm no expert on the Cowboys, but it could be, it could be that the missing piece for Dallas this year is something that they did have back in the 70s. And some of you remember this. You remember the old doomsday defense. Remember that? Remember Cliff Harris and Randy White and Everson Walls? And the most prominent members of that doomsday defense were the two defensive ends. You had Harvey Martin and then, of course, Ed Tutal Jones. And those two guys were the heart and the soul of that unit. And, and which if, with each of them playing on opposite ends of the defensive line, people referred to them as bookends to the defense. Bookends. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, well, our passage today, and this is my segue now, our passage today is a bookend to this section of Mark's gospel. We're going to begin in chapter 11 next week, which is uh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So that's a whole new section of the gospel starting. This passage, the end of chapter 10, closes out a section. And the focus of the section that it closes is, is a section that stretches all the way back to chapter 8, And the focus has been on Jesus training the twelve, training the twelve, the disciples. So so the subject has been discipleship. In these closing months of Jesus' earthly life, he is getting very intentional about training his twelve disciples. And the twelve, conversely, they have been very intentional about not grasping what it means to follow Jesus as the Messiah. They are very much blind to the truth that Jesus continues to put before them. So though he has told them three times now, three times, they do not see the fact that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be mocked and tortured and killed. They don't see it. They have no vision for what it means to deny themselves and to take up their cross and follow him. They remain unclear that the way of discipleship is eagerly serving those who can do nothing for you. They remain in the dark about the fact that Jesus' kingdom program is to make the last first and the first last. It remains fuzzy to them that their Messiah is not going to give them positions of power and honor and authority. They're blind. Which is why I point out the bookends of this three-chapter section. Because if you go back to the beginning, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 22, the, the lead bookend, I'll read it to you. It says, They came to Bethsaida, they being the disciples and Jesus. And some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything 
clearly. So that marks the beginning of this intentional stage of discipleship for the twelve. It's the story of a blind man being healed. Healed in stages, which made it sort of a unique miracle, if you remember that study. But it actually also has something in common with our story for today. So let's read that. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And they came to Jericho. Remember, Jesus had been in that region surrounding the Jordan River, the region of Perea. He's making his way to Jerusalem a final time. And so he's got a 20, 25-mile walk up the hill to Jerusalem from the Jordan River Valley. And that first city that they would come to as they made that journey was Jericho. And so they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. So the literary device that labels or that's given to these bookends is called an inclusio, an inclusio. Spell inclusion and then just leave off the N. And the purpose of an inclusio, the reason a writer would employ this device, would be to underscore the meaning of the content between the two bookends. So saying it another way, the the bookends serve to bracket a section of text highlighting its meaning. Everything inside the brackets, these these bookends, shares a common theme. And in terms of of this inclusio, the theme is the blindness of the disciples. So from this text I just read, we're going to look at Bartimaeus, this blind beggar. We're going to look at him in three primary ways. The condition of Bartimaeus, the cry of Bartimaeus, and then the cure of Bartimaeus. And before we jump into those three points... You need to consider something. You need to consider that this is the last healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has healed a lot of people in these ten chapters. A sick mother-in-law, the demon-possessed, the leper, the unclean, a paralytic, the deaf-mute. He even resurrected the dead daughter of a synagogue ruler. Additionally, he's calmed storms on a couple of occasions. He's fed massive crowds. He's basically done it all. So as Mark positions this miracle here at this place in the story, we have to look hard at this. We have to ask some deeper questions of the text because we've seen Jesus do this before. We know that he has the ability to do this kind of miracle. We're we're a full ten chapters into the book. His authority is well-established. 
So rather than just look at it as another miracle along the way, I think we have to look at why Mark positioned it here so purposefully and strategically. So let's walk through these three points. First, the condition of Bartimaeus. We see it there in verse verse 46. Two primary descriptions of this man's condition. He was blind and he was a beggar. So let's talk about blindness. Bartimaeus was a blind man. Due to factors such as disease and poor sanitation, lack of preventative care, blindness was a common problem in the first century. And we don't know if Bartimaeus was born blind or if he lost his vision through an illness or some sort of accident. The text doesn't tell us. doesn't matter. The point is he cannot see. So here is a man who he can't describe a sunset. He's probably never seen the smile on a baby's face. He can't conceive of the beauty that exists in God's creation. Bartimaeus lived a very grim existence. He lived in a world of literal darkness. That was his world, darkness. And the New Testament tells us that such is the world of all the men and women who do not know the living God. They live in a world of utter blindness. Darkness is the only light they see. So this is why if you tell a lost person of the beauties of Jesus Christ, he cannot see them. If you recite the words of John 3.16 to a lost person, they sort of just bounce off like bullets off a rock. You bring them to a church service, and they may be aware that a man up front is talking or that a group is singing, but they scarcely can see the point. They are blind They're blind because of the sin in their hearts and because of the God of this world, the devil. He has fastened a a thick, secure blindfold around their eyes. They, They see nothing of the glories of the living God. They're blind. If you read the Bible, you see one of the primary metaphors that it uses to describe the lost is that they're blind. That's physically true of Bartimaeus. He was also a beggar. Bartimaeus was not able to find employment. People weren't offering blind men jobs in the first century. There was no social programs. There were no welfare programs to help him survive. He was forced to sit by the road and beg for his daily sustenance. When the Bible says that he was begging, it means that he constantly begged. He constantly asked those passing by to give him money. So Bartimaeus is this man. He's living a life of wretched poverty. So you can imagine, you can imagine him each and every day being led to the side of the highway, this this road leading out of Jericho, and there he would spend his day begging for alms. Perhaps people were kind to him. I suppose many were cruel to him. He was likely robbed as often as he was shown mercy. But however you look at it, this is a pitiful man. He has a tragic condition. He's living in a very cruel world. And something else you need to know about blind people in the first century is the blind were reduced to begging because if you were blind, if you were blind in this culture and in this context, you were seen as being under divine judgment. You were blind because God was punishing you. Remember John chapter 9. Jesus heals this man who was born blind. Remember he has him go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. And the question the Jews were asking at this was, who sinned? This man or his parents. That's how they explained uh, blindness. They had this 
this formula. Somebody sinned, and so God is cursing this man. Who was it? That was their thinking. So you transplant that thinking to this story, and we have this man who is, who is alienated, he's ostracized, he's on the margins of society, a man thought to be under a divine curse. So he's begging. He's just taking whatever it is he can get. And by way of just a footnote to that, when Jesus accused the Pharisees of being blind, leaders of the blind, that wasn't just an assessment of their lostness. He wasn't just saying they were wayward in their thinking. He was insulting them in a big way. Because the blind were considered not just in the dark, but they they were cursed. Jesus was just stamping them with a curse. You believe the blind are cursed by God? Well, here, you're the blind leading the blind. You're cursed, and whoever follows you is cursed. So this man's tragically blind. He's a beggar. But on a positive side, we're told that he's Bartimaeus. And at this point, you're like, Jay, man, you're not big on insight this week. <laughs> you know, the, the text, it clearly says these things. It says he was blind. It, it labels him a beggar. And, and yes, it appears his name was, was Bartimaeus. You know, surely you have more than, than that. Well, I've got a little more. <clears throat> and it's wrapped up in the fact that we're told his name. And, and I don't know what it means to be the son of Timaeus. I don't know really what that all means. I have no insight there. But the mere mention of his name should stir you. Because of all the miracles performed in Mark, this is the first time we are told the name of someone being healed. Here we have the name of one being healed. The the only recipient of healing grace in Mark's gospel with an identity is Bartimaeus. Why does Mark give us his name? Well, I think it's very possible that Bartimaeus became a well-known believer. He became a well-known person in the early church. And so here, Mark is taking an opportunity to tell us the conversion story of a familiar believer or leader in the early church. But think about this further with me. Think, think about how we've, we've walked through Mark and we've seen these different encounters with Jesus. We didn't get the rich young ruler's name, did we? A man of, of prominence and wealth and impeccable character and, and status. We didn't get his name. But we do get the name of an impoverished, blind, marginalized beggar. So here's what I want you to gather from that. God knows your name. There are no insignificant people. As Francis Schaeffer once said, there are no little people. Your problems and your obstacles and your position, those things don't define you. You may not be known by anyone of significance on this earth, but the Lord of the universe knows who you are. He knows your name. Next point. So we move from the condition of Bartimaeus to this cry of Bartimaeus. Verses 47 and 48. The text tells us Bartimaeus, he hears the great crowd passing by. He didn't see, obviously, but he he heard them. And he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was was at the center uh, of this procession. So, So with that news, he begins to cry out. And there are three features of his cry. First, his cry is profound. Bartimaeus may have been blind, but he saw some things that others with 20-20 vision, they did not see. 
Bartimaeus had come to see that Jesus was the Messiah. That's why he cried out to him, Son of David. That's a profound cry. Someone once asked Helen Keller, who was, of course, blind and deaf. They asked her, isn't it terrible to be blind? Her response was, better to be blind and see with your heart than have two good eyes and see nothing. Somehow, Bartimaeus, with his heart, he had, he had taken the things that he had heard about Jesus of Nazareth, the things spoken of by those who were heading to Jerusalem, those on the Jericho Road. He, he took that information and he paired it with what he had been told from the Old Testament. The prophecies, the stories, the way the Old Testament pointed to a Messiah. It was all coming together in his heart and mind. He knew who Jesus was. There was no question. What he lacked in eyesight, he made up for in insight. He knew it. He understood the truth that most people in that day were missing. He saw the truth that Jesus was the Messiah God had promised. And since he believed that, he believed that Jesus could heal his blindness. Why? Because one of the, one of the signs of the Messiah would be that he would open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 35, 6. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Bartimaeus is laying hold of that. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what he can do. So let's apply then this as we move through this second point. Let's apply this profound cry to salvation. Let's apply this informed cry to our own salvation. Before a lost person can call out to the Lord for salvation and for grace, they must understand who Jesus is. They must see him as, as their only hope. They have to understand that, that he alone can save their soul and forgive their sins. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a peasant who managed to get himself killed on a cross. He's the Son of God. And those who come to faith in Christ, they must see that he died for their sins, that he rose again from the grave. They must, they have to know these things. The Bible teaches this. Romans 10, 9. If you, can, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's the kind of cry this blind man is making. It's informed, it's profound. The full weight of the Old Testament is behind his conviction. Second, the cry is persistent. Bartimaeus is calling out to Jesus, and, and, and he's raising a ruckus. He's causing a scene, such a scene that, that many people around, they're trying to silence Bartimaeus. And the word for rebuke there is, is loaded. It, it means to rebuke sharply. So they're not nice about it. They're essentially threatening him. They're saying, quiet, blind man. Don't, don't bother Jesus. He's too busy for someone like you. He's headed somewhere. Don't you see this? But Bartimaeus, man, he, he just keeps on calling out to Jesus. He believed Jesus could help him, and he wasn't going to allow others to keep him from getting that help. He, he's persistently crying out. He doesn't care what they're saying. And I don't know about you. But 25 years ago, the day that I trusted in Christ, I didn't care who was watching. 
I didn't care what they were thinking. I didn't care what was happening to my reputation. I was in the ninth grade, and you're, and you're no more concerned about what's going on with your reputation than when you're in the ninth grade. But it was an FCA meeting. I saw my deep need for Jesus. I recognized who he was in light of who I was, and I cried out to him. There was nothing that was going to stop me. And again, if you think about his blind condition, crying out is all this man's got. He can't see. He can't find Jesus in the crowd and run up to him. All he can do is cry out. So he cries out persistently. The third feature of his cry is that it's penitent. It's penitent. Why do I say that? Well, the heart of his cry is, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus knows that he is in no position to demand anything from Jesus. He's a beggar. His life is one giant appeal to mercy always and at all times. So he's not demanding that Jesus go to work on his behalf. He's not claiming that he has the right to be healed. His posture is not like the rich young ruler. He is seeking mercy. The word mercy means to bring help to the wretched. Bartimaeus knew that he needed something that he could not provide. And due to his wretched condition, he also knew that he had no right to demand it. Only only Jesus could help. Only Jesus brings help to the wretched. And so, again, let's think about this practically. Let's think about this concerning our own spiritual condition, our own salvation. When we think about salvation, we think about our own spiritual things. Are we trying to lay hold of some rights? I have the right to this. I have the right to be saved. I have the right to fairness. I have the right to equity with God. What? I don't want my rights. I want mercy. I want, I want grace. If, if I got what I deserved, if I got was, what was coming to me, I'd be in hell. And so would you. We have no right to heaven. We have no right to Jesus. We have no right to salvation. We have the right to live a lost, wretched life with an eternity in hell waiting for us. That's what we have a right to. I don't want my rights. I want mercy. I want grace. I think of the last and dying words of Martin Luther. As he lay on his deathbed, he uttered a a final sentence before entering into glory. He said, we are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. That's an appeal to mercy. That's an acknowledgement that God owed him nothing in that moment. It's an appeal to mercy. Luther also said about this particular text, he said, many fail to be saved because they cannot bring themselves to use personal pronouns. What did he mean by that? Again, look at the cry. Have mercy on me. Me. Your appeal to mercy has to be a personal appeal. It has to recognize your own wretched condition. It's not a general appeal for mercy. It's a personal pleading. I need mercy because of me. Another subject on the thought, 
or another thought on the subject of mercy, I should say. And this one's kind of funny, loosen you up a bit. I read about a lady who, who went to a photographer one day, and she had her picture made. And when he showed her the proofs, she was, she was very unhappy, and she said, well, I don't like those. Those proofs don't do me justice. He said, ma'am, what you need is not justice. What you need is mercy. <laughs> me too. Not just at the photographer, but, but in life. I don't want justice. Oh, my gosh. Justice frightens me. Mercy, though. Mercy is a sweet and beautiful thing. So the cry of a desperate man has, has brought Jesus to a stop. We see it there in verse 49. Isn't that a marvelous thing? The creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, is brought to a stop. He's heard this cry, and he's standing still for this man. For this man. So let's look then at the, at the cure of Bartimaeus, this last point. Verses 49 through 52. We're going to examine the cure on two fronts. His cure is personal, and it's powerful. So first, personal. What do I mean by that? Well, look at what Jesus says to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus takes his cry for mercy, and he makes it personal for you. What do you want me to do for you? So what if God were asking you that question this morning? Randy, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that? Joe, what do you want me to do for you? Dwight, what do you want me to do for you? Dorothy, what do you want me to do for you? What if God was asking you that question this morning? How would you answer it? If that question is familiar, it's because it appeared in the previous passage. You remember James and John, they, they had told Jesus that they wanted him to do for them whatever they asked. And so Jesus answers them by asking them a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They say, put us one at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. So essentially they say to Jesus, we want you to put us in a position where everybody serves us, where everybody honors us, where everybody elevates us, everybody lifts us up. We want to be in a place where we're revered. We want to be exercising judgment alongside you. That's what we want you to do for us. And here we have a completely different attitude. When Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Right there, we have the high king of heaven. We have God incarnate, the second member of the Trinity. He's essentially becoming a servant to a sinner. He's the errand boy of a debased, lowly, blind beggar. And this is the kind of posture that Jesus has been teaching the disciples for three chapters. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom? Then be a servant. You want to be first in the kingdom? Be a slave of all. So we have Jesus. He's taking that very position. What do you want me to do for you? Well, this man only wants mercy. Not like James and John. James and John, they wanted to be elevated. This man knows he deserves nothing. He's not laying claim on anything. He calls Jesus Rabboni. Some of your texts use that word. Only one other person referred to Jesus using that term. It was Mary Magdalene when she encountered the risen Christ on that first 
Easter morning. She said, Rabboni. It's a word that sounds like rabbi. Rabbi means teacher, but it's a grander word than that. It means Lord and Master. So he says, Lord and Master, let me recover my sight. Again, he doesn't want a position of honor. He doesn't want power in the kingdom, not a, not a place of status, just sight. He says to Jesus, just, just give me what most, really, everybody has. Give me eyes to see. Uh, I know you can. I know who you are. Again, there's a direct line to our, our spiritual existence there. When we appeal to God's mercy, what are we appealing for? We need eyes to see. We need the scales to fall off. We need the, our, our hard, wretched hearts to be softened and turned to clay. We need the blindness removed, the veil torn apart. We need to see. That's the mercy we need. That's the mercy this man seeks. So it was personal. The cure was powerful. Powerful because Jesus says to him, doesn't touch him, doesn't spit and rub mud in his eyes, doesn't make him wash in a pool. He says to Bartimaeus, go your way, your faith has made you well. Some of your versions say whole. The phrase basically means your faith has saved you. And that's, that's the program of salvation. It's always by faith. You go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's salvation by faith. That's where this man arrives. This blind beggar, he knew who Jesus was, he confessed that truth before him, and he appealed to him for mercy. He did those things, he was saved. And that's how all of us are saved. We come to know who Jesus is, we confess that truth before him, and we appeal to him for his mercy. We acknowledge who we are, and we're saved. And that's not formulaic. I'm not trying to make salvation some sort of, you know, three happy hops or whatever steps or whatever. I'm just saying, when you know who Jesus is, in light of who you are, it leads you to appeal to him for mercy. God delights when we agree with him about our condition. We don't like to admit to our condition. But he delights in it. And when we, when we agree with him about our condition, that's just another way of saying we repent and we put our faith in him. If you've never done that, if you've never arrived at that place where you've really cried out to him for the mercy that only he can provide, you can do that today. You can do it in this very moment as we sit here together. You can wait until afterward. You can wait till you go home. You can get with a friend this evening. But be mindful. This is the last time Jesus would pass by. He's going, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. He's not going to walk this Jericho road ever again. Maybe he's passed by Bartimaeus before. This is the last time. And so Bartimaeus lays hold of the healing and the salvation that only Christ can offer. So this passage, this, this chapter, this whole section concludes with the words, and followed him on the way and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus went from beggar beside the road to disciple on the road. There's, there's the real power on display. 
Yes, the miracle cure was a display of power, but the spiritual fruit of the miracle is even more powerful. This whole section has been on the nature of true discipleship. And you know what? We finally have one. It's Bartimaeus. It's not James. It's not John, not Peter or Andrew. It's Bartimaeus. That's why we're given his name. We have a disciple now. A disciple who knows who Jesus is, appeals for his mercy, receives his miraculous healing power, and then follows Jesus wherever he leads, wherever he goes. That's why we're here today, because we've been approached by Jesus. Somewhere along the road in our lives, from all the different backgrounds and places that, that we all come from, Somewhere along the way, in our blindness, in our desperation, he passed by, our hearts were awakened, we cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Maybe we didn't use those words, but we used words like that. And he heard the cry. He heard the cry. And it's all made possible because of where he was headed. Because he was going to go all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the cross, and all the way to the other side of the empty tomb to give us victory over death and darkness and blindness and sin and eternal life with him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture. We thank you for the way that Mark records this particular story for us and the way it just parallels how we come to faith in you, how we are saved by your gracious and merciful hand. Lord, I I pray that we as individuals would have just a constant appeal on our lips, and that would be, Lord, have mercy. And as a church, we would have a constant appeal on our lips, Lord, have mercy. And as as a community, as a nation, Lord, that we would be looking to you for only the mercy that, that you can give. God, we thank you that you, you give us eyes to see, that you don't leave us in our blindness, but through an awesome display of power, you give us spiritual sight. We recognize your sovereign hand in that, that we have no part to play. But we repent and we believe, we trust in what only you can do. We thank you for your power and just your profound grace in our lives. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.
It's truly good to gather in this place together, to worship Him, to uh, encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Uh, As we close our time here, let me just make a a few announcements. Uh, Make sure you get your bulletin so you can look through.